I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. you agree with that? I do, yeah. Yeah, you got an endearing voice. I just needed validation. Yeah. I'm Brian Stever. <laughs> Welcome to the Sick Boy Podcast. <laughs> Today we're tuning down with Todd Leader. Um, <laughs> so, you mean like, uh, like this American lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like Ira Glass. I'm Ira Glass. Um, so we are, uh, we are sitting down with Todd Leader today. Um, and, uh, I love that your last name is Leader Todd because, uh, you're also a leadership consultant, uh, very fitting last name. Um, is that why you I chose to go, happens. is that why you chose to go into the line of work that you do? You were like, my last name is, makes sense for this. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's go with that. It's yeah. like when you have a, like when you have a, like an NHL goalie whose name is Wall. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, wow. Yeah. You really lived up to it. It's yeah. <laughs> great. Um, but Todd, you uh, you're you're also a consultant in addiction and mental health, and um, uh, we actually we met a number of years back mm-hmm. at a uh, an event at a university here in in Halifax where we were speaking about um, mental health. Uh, was it a men's mental health? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, yes. It was. Right. Um, and uh, and all these years later, we come around full circle. We're in the studio hanging out with you. Um, you applied to be on the show a little while back and, uh, I remember when your application came in, it was, I was really, it was really astounding. Your story. I remember you stopping, stopping, uh, what, what I was doing and reading yeah. to me. Yeah. It's, um, and, and I don't know, like, I don't know if this was something that you had gone through when we, like no. after we had met or, or was this after we had met what you went through? Yeah. Holy shit. Can you, do you want to like give our listeners a little bit of, um, a sort of rundown on on the basic story, kind yeah. Of? The basic story. First, first of all, introduce yourself, yeah. and then and then of course, um, uh, we we can get into the story. Yeah, sure. So, um, professionally speaking, I'm a registered community psychologist and a registered social worker. I've been teaching university part time for 32 years. I've been uh, in leadership in healthcare, but a lot of addiction mental health for uh, for the same length of time. But uh, what happened to me a few years ago was uh, I, I have a fairly pretty severe case of restless leg syndrome, uh, or Willis Eckbaum disease, it's now called. And so I was on a, a drug for that, the, the number one drug for that, which is a dopamine agonist, which means it boosts dopamine in the brain. It's used for Parkinson's disease as well. Is it gabapentin? No, actually, this one's called pramipexol. Okay. And so. <clears throat> uh, Anyway, I was on that that medication for a while, and um, during that time, people started to notice that I was behaving oddly for mm. me, out of character, uh, and in an inappropriate way. Particularly my communication, but but even 
you know, even sexually, I, my interests were changing, becoming more, uh, just more fringe kind of in mm-hmm. a way. Uh, but I, my communication, uh, you know, here I am living a, a professional life. I'm, I'm traveling the country talking about my book and mental health and all of this at conferences. And I'm, I'm teaching university uh, and, and I'm communicating with people in ways that are inappropriate inappropriate for my role and, and, and inappropriate at the time too, especially because (laughs) our society, we had just come to the point where we were really getting some, some movement with the me too movement, right? Mm -hmm. You know, things were starting to kind of finally come around to, we need to pay more attention to how men treat women. Right. Mm. Like the way, like the, like the, like the way in which people saw what was, what was now right and wrong in in social settings was changing pretty dramatically and quickly very much yeah and so anyway here i was um you know communicating with former students and with uh, with current students at at uh, the university i teach at and uh, I, I spoke at a conference in ontario it was a pretty important conference for me at the time and uh, the reviews afterwards, you know, participants write their comments, you know, on, on sure. papers. The CEO of the organization emailed me and said, we got the, the evaluations back and just wanted to share a couple of these with you. And I was referred to by a couple of people as uh, vulgar and misogynistic. Huh. And I, I don't know what I said. That's the thing about that one that frustrates me is I don't know what I said. As far as I knew, it was the same kind of talk that I had been giving in all kinds of places. Um, but I, I communicated in sort of sexually suggestive kinds of ways by text and other kinds of messages. That was where my big problem was. It was actually in messaging, uh, more so than in person. Uh, and, um, so this medication, I, I, um, sorry, just to sort of fast forward a little bit, uh, I started getting complaints against me in, in formal ways. And so with the university, uh, there was a there was a complaint. There were complaints with my regulatory bodies, and because I'm registered under you know under a psychology board and a college of social workers, they both received multiple complaints, and so this was becoming really kind of I don't know just it was this out of body kind of thing happening because I didn't know why everybody was attacking me. Oh wow, weird. So you're not like, like you you're, you don't even you're not even able to like zoom out and see. Absolutely not at that point. Uh, when I mean, you're getting the when you're getting the reviews and you're getting the complaints, and you're having people tell you like, "Hey, what the fuck? What's with this message you yeah. sent me?" It, are like, what's going through? Are you just like, oh, "That's weird." Yeah, that's fucking it, weird. Absolutely, like, I'm just being myself. Like, right. What? So I'm smartass. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I tend to be a smartass. So that's the way I teach at yeah. university. It's the way I communicate, and so. Uh, you know, I tend to inject a lot of humor, um, the kind of humor that you guys would appreciate. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of a, a, a norm in a sense. So this stuff that was supposedly out, outside the boundaries, uh, I just thought, like, I would respond in my own head with, what are you talking about? That's just the way I joke. They don't mm-hmm. get it. Right. What, like, you're feeling like, I nothing here has changed. Something right. outside, something socially outside of yeah. me must have changed yeah. to warrant these complaints. But, right. But, but I, I feel like, um, and so with your professional background, um, you know, particular, particularly in clinical psych- psychology, I feel like um, one aspect of a psychologist is is really about being aware of how your communication may be affecting the person that you're speaking with. I imagine like in the clinical setting, um, speaking to a patient, it's like, oh, you have to be like hyper aware of how you phrase things and put things 
because these people could be vulnerable to the way that you suggest certain ideas or whatever. So I'm curious about how your professional background sort of either shone some insight onto how those things might have been interpreted or like not at all, like how there was no relationship whatsoever. Well, so I, I don't actually do clinical work at, okay. at, at all, but still the, the, the expectation professionally is the same in terms of, sure. of being aware of my impact on other people and, mm -hmm. and how I communicate. But I, I really wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting the message. The message to me was, it, it just, I, I, I don't know, I felt more attacked. It was really odd because I couldn't figure out what it was that was wrong, you know, that I was doing wrong. And um, it led, it, it ultimately led, because I, I started getting this clear picture. I mean, I was worried about these complaints because there were complaints sure. about a kind of behavior <laughs> that I knew was problematic. I just didn't know that I was engaging in that problematic behavior. You know what I mean? But yeah. I knew it was going to be a problem. But uh, but it ultimately led to me concluding, frankly, that uh, I, you know, I, I grew up, I'm a Cape Bretoner. I, I kind of grew up with with pretty good values. I got into the fields so that I did because I want to make a difference in a positive way on people's lives. And here I was being told by everybody that I was doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so you, you've had conversations, I think, where the concept of moral injury comes in. And, uh, you know, and the, anyway, there was this shame and all that kind of stuff coming that even if I didn't get it, and I wasn't going to live that as that kind of person. And so I had a suicide attempt. Uh, as a result of that, oh but it wasn't the medication that caused suicidality. It was a decision that I couldn't live as a, a I don't know, a predator. Uh, I couldn't live being seen as that, yeah. that kind of person that I, that I despise. There, what, what was the time horizon? What was the time horizon in that? Like what, what was that a, was that a, like how quickly did you come to this suicidality from the, from the, the complaints that were coming in from your, mm -hmm. like in your orbit? The bulk of that, uh, the bulk of that happened over a, probably about a year. The progression of that, the, these the side effects of this medication are the, what they're known to be, which I ended up discovering later after the fact, uh, are they they cause disinhibition. So that one's huge. Yeah. So you know, I mean, so after you have your first couple beer. Uh, you know, and you're, you're saying things that you might not normally say in the company that you're with and you're, you know, people, they're not staggering, but you're, you know, you're letting stuff out that normally wouldn't come out. You're right? a little loose. Yeah. And, Absolutely. And, and maybe, and maybe at a, in a, in a bar setting, everyone goes along and it's, yeah. and it's fun, but in other settings. Yeah. Especially so a professional yeah. setting. I mean. yeah. Right. And so disinhibition is one of the things it causes. It also causes impulse control disorders and so that really means whatever occurs to you you just sort of say it it stuff just comes out you just do things there's no control over impulse impulses and there it was uh, a lot of there was some money issues too right like it wasn't just the it wasn't just like the creepy old man shit coming out of your mouth it, you your wallet was just like you were zipping through money right absolutely uh, the two areas that this medication is known to affect the most are sex and money so the creepy old this man stuff. Wild. Like this is wild. This is such a wild thing. I, I sorry, sorry to cut no, you off. No, there, no. But, but it's just it's so fucking mind blowing to me that this one drug can affect someone in that specific way. And 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 what's really like kind of blowing my mind is like I can I can picture I've been in a position where like my inhibitions have been lowered. Okay. In a in a you know like out at the bar having drinks yep. where I'm just like ah, yeah fuck, like fuck I'm gonna. 
Uh-huh. I'm gonna put my like I'm gonna put my dick in a laser like that, that's outside the bar right now. Like this would be funny, and people are like, "Yeah, that, that's fucking crazy." Like, why shouldn't do that? But like to think about that being on a, on a crazy I, where, I, I, where is this laser? It was at Acadia. <laughs> I remember this story. Yeah, there's a, there's story a oh, right. Story there's for another a, show. A yeah, it's another show. It's like when I, Tiller I, almost I, put the statue finger in his butthole. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. I was drinking that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but like that, there's a spectrum there, right? And so, like you know. To feel what that that is on the spectrum of of like having too many beers is one thing, but then to turn that up to like eleven yeah. on a on a drug that um that that you're not drunk on yep. that you're That's you know right. you're kind of going about your day it's such a it's such a wild thing to think about. Um, it's it has like it has um it reminds me a lot of our conversation with Dave. Shampix, Shampix, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shampix, the, the the anti anti smoking smoking, yeah. smoking cessation yeah. drug. Which he, I mean, he completely lost all touch with reality, and he yeah. couldn't speak. Like it was a, oh. but he, but he was, he was lucid, and he was, he knew what was going on. He just couldn't, for some reason, communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then of course, like just kind of went away. But yeah, different like symptoms, but like, yes. but a very kind of similar. Like I'm taking this drug, and all of a sudden, my life is turned upside down. Yeah. I have no idea why. Yeah. I, uh, I feel like this might be a, a bit of a tough question, but I'm sure people listening are thinking about this, which is. How do we know that, like, that this is caused by a drug mm-hmm. rather than, like, you know, in hindsight going, oh, well, this is a good excuse to say that, like, this disinhibition came from this use of medication and not just the choices that you were making? Sure. And, you know, I, I think that's a, you're right. That's a tough question. And it's a question that people have asked and yeah. that I expect, actually. And, um, I think a couple of things come to mind. One is the fact that it's natural for people, I think, to go there because of the nature of the communication I'm talking about and because of my age and gender, right? Sure. You know, I'm, it's, the, it's the whole midlife crisis kind of language might be in people's minds and, the, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. And, and picturing me with a toupee and a Corvette all of a sudden, uh, you know, so, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but the, the, wait, thing, was that, was that, was that real? Was that? No, oh, okay. no, okay. no. <laughs> I, had, I had none of the other okay. midlife crisis okay. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, didn't hook up with any, anybody during the process. So, you know, the, right. it, it wasn't that, but it's actually the, the, the main thing is that the, there is a ton of medical medical publications on this medication and and when you stopped taking the meds it was gone you were done yeah right yeah Uh, so when it was finally discovered and this was after a second visit to the hospital because i i knew i was going to um when i when i had my suicide attempt it was i don't know i'm somebody who doesn't like to fail and i considered it a failure that i was alive sure you know because and and I think of it as, I don't know, it was a, a terrible attempt. That's the way I kind of came at it, you know, the next day. And by the next week, I knew I was, I was going to complete the process. Uh, and, um, but I, I was lucid enough to, to tell my family. And so they took me to the hospital. And it was after that, I ended up with a, an outpatient, an urgent medication review by an outpatient psychiatrist three days later. How and, common is that? Like a like a medication review because this is actually the first time I've ever heard of that. Yeah, I'm not sure actually. I, mm. I, you know, I, the people in the ER did their assessment. I was there for a long time, and th- this is what they concluded was they wanted somebody with expertise to be able to really look at that. Sure. There was enough evidence there of them going, he's they, he's not the same guy that he was two years ago. So like, right. what's the what what are we putting into him? Yeah, exactly. Right. 
So an hour and a half into this assessment with a psychiatrist and a nurse, uh, and he says, well, this medication is your problem. Uh, it's known to cause what you've just described, this kind of personality change. And, wow. uh, and he said, and this other medication, so you're talking about Champix uh, a minute ago, um, Wellbutrin, uh, which is the, uh, the other of the two main smoking aids, yes. but also is an antidepressant, <clears throat> right. is also a dopamine agonist. It also boosts dopamine. I was also on that. I'd lived with depression my whole life. So, so I was also on that. And this psychiatrist's theory was that it was actually boosting the side effects of the Pramipexol. Oh, wow. So he weaned me off of the Wellbutrin first, which made it an interesting test of, of that theory. Mm. And two weeks into just that part of it, I probably had 80% of my control back. Whoa. Wow. Just from coming off the one that was boosting it. Right, right, right. So, and it was about eight, eight weeks probably before I'd say I had, you know, 90, 95% back. And, um, yeah. And then, then for the next couple of years, I lived with really a lot of deep depression and yeah. shame. Yeah. Like how do you bounce shame. back from, because like, again, this is one of those things that once you, once this happens to you, like you're, you're kind of, your reputation is tarnished. It's like you could say you could say to the person that you wronged, "Hey, I was on a drug and it and it and it dropped my inhibitions. Yeah. I'm sorry." But to them, it's like, I don't fucking care. Who the fuck are you talking? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? A drug? This is that's bullshit or what? You know, whatever. Like, they might not believe it. Still a creepy old man. Yeah, exactly. You, well, what, think about what, like what happened happened, and so it's like, how do how for you? Like, did you did you get, kind of go on a mission to go? All right, here's how I'm going to. Um, here's how I'm going to like make an attempt to, to reach out or to try to try to mend the harm that was done, even though it was done outside of my own control. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> the, what, what I, what I learned about in that, sorry, sorry, certainly I absolutely did that. I started to, for those people who I knew I hurt and there were many who I knew I hurt or offended in one way or another, um, all women. Uh, because uh, during that time, that's really what it was about. And I'll come back to the money part. Sure, sure, I forgot about sure. that. But yeah, I, I started uh, doing my best to tell the medical story because there is that social story, which yeah. is the creepy old man part. But what I really needed was for people to know the medical piece of this, um, you know, just for my own sake. But there's still, what I learned is that there's no way to escape the shame um, regardless of how I've lived my life before and since that phase, regardless of knowing the, that it was a medical uh, issue, a medically induced mental illness, essentially, uh, aside from all of that, it's the, the shame still is there because yeah. in my mind, it, I, I still communicated that way to people. I still offended mm -hmm. people and hurt people. Whether I had control or not is, I don't know, that doesn't change it for some reason. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about it in turn, like trying to relate to it in the sense of how I've felt when I've been black or drunk before. Whether I, whether, whether I, whether I, whether I did anything that was offensive or not, the fact that you pissed the, the bed, the fact I have <laughs> yeah, pissed the bed a yeah. lot. The fact that uh, not who a has lot, it? but like you know, <laughs> who, who has it? Thank, <laughs> thanks, Hover, thank you, the bed, thank Mike. you, Todd. I, 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 <laughs> I, I Todd. I'm allowed to uh, to to pile on that because. Uh, <laughs> We don't need to share specific Taylor specifically stories. peed all over my DVD collection. Yeah. So oh. I mean, DVDs were on the way out anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so, okay. um, yeah. But like, you know, relating to that feeling of going, I 
wasn't I I like that person last night wasn't me. Yeah. So whether I did anything or not, I feel shameful for not being myself. Yeah. And what that version of me that I didn't have control over and in that in that particular case with drinking is like it's your fault. Mm-hmm. You know, you you chose yes. to engage yeah. in it and so there's a there's an aspect of responsibility that you can't just you can't just push off the responsibility you did it. I I'm speaking about me. But you are left with that shame of mm. what did I do? and so I'm kind of I'm I'm trying I'm relating to your your feelings on that level of and I feel like probably something that a lot of people can well, relate to. but just to add to that too, arguably even more so, um, there's responsibility on on the way that you acted in a situation when you're drunk because oh, of course you made you made you the choice consciously made the decision to drink. Therefore, yeah, you, know, you have to take ownership over the person mm-hmm. that you were. Medication thing is a little bit more nuanced in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the money part there is. I mean, um, there was some obviously harm done. But you're you're yeah. married, I take it. And, yep. Yeah, thirty four uh, years. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like. Was the money part the part that, what, what was the, how, how did your partner react to all this? Like, like the, cause that's a lot to go through. Yeah. Uh, obviously. She, uh, she describes me, her, her language. She describes me as having been a different person. And to the extent that after, I don't know, 28 years or something by that point, she was actually in, she was talking with my sister about, uh, how to go about divorcing me. Oh, wow. And after 28 years of, you know, we're, we're a good couple. I mean, we're, we're in this for life. And, but the person that she was with at that point wasn't me in so many ways. And so she describes me as having been a different person. Um, and as things just started to kind of blow up and escalate, uh, you know, she, I think probably felt as much relief as I did the day that the doctor actually said, here's what's causing it. Mm -hmm. You know, I could just feel this, oh shit, I hope he's right. That's Mm -hmm. all I could think. Yeah. You know, because I can't be this person. This isn't me. And I, I, I won't be this person, Mm -hmm. but yeah. So during that, that same period of time, uh, I gave away over $12,000. This is in a period of about a year, uh, to a former student um, I had, I had gotten really close with her and in, in a legitimate way originally, but then started all the same inappropriate communication. And, uh, but I would send, she'd, she'd want to take her boyfriend out to, she had a boyfriend in another province and she'd want to take him out, you know, and I just, so I just, he transfer money. She'd mentioned that she, something she wanted to buy. And so 500 bucks, he transferred and it was just nuts. It, when I look yeah, back at yeah, it, it's right. nuts. I've yeah. got the record of all the transfers, and I'm looking at them thinking, like, what was I thinking? What the hell? Mm. And yeah, so over $12,000 in a year, it was just this no impulse control around money. Mm. People uh, in, the, in the research around this, the case studies and stuff, people are known to, to develop gambling addictions. That's one of the key right. ones right. Uh, that this one causes. And so you're kind <laughs> of like probably, wow. you're, you know, you're, you're, you, you, you're, you might have been one casino visit away from uh, yeah potentially you know, yeah and i'm not i'm not a gambler at all yeah. but uh, but yeah absolutely it's the that's what it does and there are also going back to your question brian about kind of how do we know it was the medication the other bit of evidence around this is there have been multiple class action lawsuits against the pharmaceutical industry that have been successful wow related to this drug oh, and, wow. the, and ruining people's lives what Jeez. like to to speak a little bit about the system in relationship to that, like 
how do drugs that are known to have side effects like this end up in people? Well, the simple answer is <clears throat> it's all, there's always a cost-benefit kind of analysis, right? Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I'm going to get this knee replaced in two days, okay? So they might put me on on uh, codeine or something else for a couple of days. Well, okay, so that's going to help numb the pain, but it's also going to cause constipation. So, you know, is is this, is the gain worth the loss? Right. Kind of. That, so that's the way all medications are, all prescriptions. That's the way they're always handled. And and again, this is used for Parkinson's. So if, it, if I was using it for Parkinson's, well, the, the gain might be significantly higher, right? And so it, that's, that's really it. It's just mm. the problem is, and the reason the pharmaceutical industry got in trouble was because people weren't being told the details of this yeah. side effect yeah, right. Yeah. Right. in advance. And I had no, just no clue whatsoever. And, and is, there, is there a problem though with, like you mentioned, um, being on Wellbutrin at the same time and, yeah. and those sort of amplifying each other, is there a, a, do they ever look at the medications that you're being prescribed um, holistically to see what sort of impacts they might have on one another? Like, isn't that part of the pharmaceutical review? I think that that happens, uh, you know, to my knowledge, certainly in terms of other medications, I end up with in conversations with pharmacists when I get a new prescription for something, because I'm old, I've got a few prescriptions, you know, I've got a shitload of stuff happening with me. And uh, that'll happen to you guys, don't get cocky. <laughs> uh, so, um, but, uh, but so they do do that. But I, I think the thing in, in my observation, one of the key lessons I took out of this is that I don't think we and anybody really pays enough attention to the psychological yeah. side effects. I think we, you know, if, if you get a new prescription and, and, you know, they hand you this piece of paper, the three or four pages of, of all the details, side effects. And so you're, you're looking through this stuff and you're looking for things like, you know, is it going to cause me some kind of a pain or a rash or a, mm. you know, a nausea or diarrhea, you know, you're just kind of scanning for that stuff just so you know. And you might just skim right past something that's, yeah. that alludes to, eh, might affect your mood, might affect your, like language that's vague, yeah. but really is right. about psychological <laughs> totally. impact. The part, that's, the part that's hard about that, though, is that like when it's, your, when it's psychological in nature, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to pinpoint than, you know, you get the constipation, you know, you're sitting on the can going, <laughs> I'm fucking, I'm back, I'm all bunged up right now. <laughs> yeah. And I know I can feel yeah. it. And I you're not going, gee, I wonder what this is. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like, like actually I was, I was talking to a girl at, at, um, at Propeller the other night and she, she came up to me and she was like, Hey, I'm a big fan of the show. I had CF. And I was like, Oh, cool. And she was like, yeah, I'm taking Tricaftin. And I was like, how are you finding it? And she was like, it's amazing, but I have this, um, incredible brain fog. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's really like having an effect on me. And I was like, huh, do I have that? <laughs> yeah. Like, am I, am, have I had brain fog? Because I have felt fucking weird, but uh, here and there over the last little bit, I'm like, fuck, maybe, maybe the brain fog actually is from the trichapta. And I have just no idea yeah. that that's going on because, because psychologically, when you have, when you start to have shifts and changes, it really takes, I mean, oftentimes it takes somebody else to say to you, hey, you've been mm. short lately or you've been, you know, you've been, you've been doing this or that lately. And it's not your, you're not being yourself. I think we have side effect blindness, though, yes. like from uh, especially like 
the commercials during like the Price is Right, where like they just riddle off all that like fine print yeah. stuff. Oh, the, at the American end. ads, and, yeah. But it, but it, it's kind of like that. Like I mean, it's like terms of service on like you sign up, you download a new app and install it on your phone. It's like, are you gonna really read the hundred page T's and C's before you install it or the, whatever? The, the other the other stuff the other problem, which is probably why it. You know, not like I saw it on a commercial and I asked my doctor about it because, like, who is asking their doctor about the drug that they saw that on the commercial that they don't even describe what it does? I'm not sure, but maybe people do. Um, but when you're getting it from a doctor, you 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 would like to, you would like, you would hope that you're going to get a pretty full rundown on the side effects. But maybe one of the reasons why you don't is because there are all of those side side effects if you broke them down they would all have a percentage of the population in the clinical trials that 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 side effect is attributed to so some of those might be like 1% of people who take this drug out of the million people it's been prescribed to have have done that. so then the doctor just doesn't really maybe the doctor knows that but the doctor doesn't bring it up because like it's it's so not that they shouldn't but it's <laughs> yeah. so improbable yeah. that they don't think that it's very valuable to come across it because like it's so improbable, but then you end up with that side effect and it's yeah. really damaging. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Jeremy, your point, I, I want to go back to that. that um, one, again, a key lesson I took out of this <laughs> is that uh, when people are getting a new prescription, first of all, read the damn paper that they give you, yeah. ask the pharmacist questions. Like what are the side effects? Yeah. You know, just get as much as you can, uh, but then if there are psychological impacts at all, if it talks about behavior or emotions or thoughts or brain fog or whatever, if it mentions any of that at all, share that information with someone else in your life yes, who, right. who sees you right. regularly. Yeah. So whether that's a partner or each other here, your buddies or whatever, but share it with a couple other people and so that they're watching for it. Yeah. Yeah. My wife knew she didn't know what it was. She didn't know why it was happening, but she she would have been able to identify this if she had known ahead of time. This is what it might cause. Right, right. She would have noticed it. I would say probably a year and a half earlier. Yeah, right. Than it was right. identified because wow. it really is like it. It is. It is very sim. It, it can be very similar to, um, you know, recognizing that a friend might be struggling with alcoholism or substance abuse or, uh, or depression. Like you're kind of, you're, you're close to them and you're starting to see these behaviors, but, but it's not like it all comes on all at once. And so you start to see these like changes and you're, you kind of notice yeah. and you're kind of like, huh, that's weird. File that away. And then as it progresses, it, it gets to a point eventually where you're like, this isn't right. This yeah. is, this is different. Now, Todd, you uh, you also, I mean, all of this happened after you wrote um, and published your book, It's Not About Us, The Secret to Transforming the Mental Health and Addiction System in Canada. Um, as someone who wrote this book before going through what you went through and then going through your mental health crisis, coming out on the other end, um, how... I mean, how like how important did this book seem to be to you after going through the experience that you had? Did you mm -hmm. did you feel like you came out of that that mental health crisis experience with a little bit of a new sort of um, like a, a new seeing the mental health um, uh, system through a new lens? Yeah, I think I did. Uh, I did when it comes to issues like stigma. 
Yeah. For instance, because that that's where the, I don't know, that's where I experienced the most. I, I was lucky in terms of the services because, you know, I, I mean, I went through the emergency department and I ended up with a cancellation slot for this outpatient assessment three days later. I mean, so I, mm. I got lucky, right? And I got lucky that this guy was able to identify it because otherwise I probably wouldn't be here. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but what I also learned was that uh, I learned how to analyze stigma in a different way. So, we, you know, we talk about stigma as if it's, I don't know, this, this abstract thing out there in society that we need to somehow stop. And, or, you know, we think of it as just, you know, mistreating people who have some type of illness, you know, uh, and it, it isn't that it, it's, I mean, it's, that's all just, I don't know, that's what gives the politicians, you know, I, I was listening to your, you had Carol Bennett, Carolyn Bennett on and others. Mm -hmm. And so it gives them the, the language to use, mm -hmm. you know, but. Is that like a symptom of stigma rather than what it actually is sort of? Well, yeah, what, what it's, what I experienced and what I, the way I, I guess I, I'm lucky that, you know, I came out of the other end of this, like Jeremy said, uh, and I happened to have the background to be able to analyze this in a, in a different way. So I, I, I do have the beginnings of another book about this experience right. that's going to get at, at a lot of the stigma pieces of it. Because for, for example, um, I had two regulatory bodies that I am accountable to, right? As a social worker and as a psychologist, the uh, social work organization, they contracted a, a private practice psychiatrist to do a full assessment uh, to see like, is this real? You know, back to Brian's question. Okay. Brian's, you know, so, and so, and so, he was working for them, not for me. This was not. He had no obligation to my well-being. Mm -hmm. He was contracted to be objective for them. His language was was really clear in this, you know, twenty-five page document that he created. The language was really clear. He said, uh, you know, the medication has caused the behaviors that are the subject of these complaints, and Mr. Leader can't be held accountable for those behaviors. Like that's the way he approached it. Right. So it's kind of like the not criminally responsible type sure, of sure, idea yeah. we're all familiar with. <clears throat> and so, uh, so the social work organization they took that and and took an approach that that wasn't disciplinary. It was kind of like a letter on my file that says, basically, you know, be careful of meds and look after your own health and keep seeing your psychologist. And that, that was the gist of it. Mm -hmm. The psychology organization, totally different thing. It was, it was a, a, a process of judgment from the very beginning. And so what I, and what I learned from them, and, and they took a disciplinary approach, took them five years to do it. Five years this process went on, but they they would not accept the medical evidence from that psychiatrist. They they wouldn't accept the diagnosis and treatment and effective results from the treating psychiatrist. Hmm. They sent me to Toronto to another psychiatrist to do another assessment on their dime. Honest to God. And what they, was his were, assessment? Uh, pretty much the same thing. Different language, right. different approach, but pretty yeah. much the same thing. Like, yeah, this medication you know, there's likely the cause. I mean, it's retrospective. So of course it's, yeah. you know, um, but, but they, you know, they, because what they had done in, in my analysis of this, what they had done is they had taken behaviors that are caused by an illness in this case, side effect of a medication, but think of it as a, me a mental illness, yeah. right? Um, but they take those behaviors, they blame the person, the, the person's character, yes. the person's moral fiber and yeah. personality they blamed that person for those behaviors, for the symptoms of the illness. And 
and I think that's what stigma is. Yeah. It's actually blaming the person for so blaming an alcoholic for fucking drinking. You yeah, know, blaming a drug addict for being addicted to drugs. Well, or, or I mean, somebody with a with a lung disease. You, you know, if if they're yeah. if they're struggling to keep up when you're going for a hike. Yeah. Do yeah. you say, God, you're such a lazy asshole? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no. I mean, that would be stupid. Yeah. Like it would just be completely yeah. irrational to do that, yeah. right? And does this feel like extremely? Uh, uh, ironic or hypocritical or ironic from coming from a, mm. from, from my college of, of psychologists. Most definitely. But it, it, it showed me that, I don't know, the, that even in the, the professions that are supposed to be the experts on all of this stuff, stigma can still be kind of creeping its way mm. in around there. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they might be experts on treatment, but, but, this aspect of things just isn't given a lot of thought, it seems, mm-hmm. at least by the people that that I dealt with. Because you would, because ex- you would expect, right? I mean, like th- th- that. There's a that there's probably a higher level of understanding of why, of why a person behaves the way that they behave, coming from you, you would a, expect a governing body in psychology. Yeah, <laughs> I had the same thing with the university I teach at. They they took a disciplinary approach despite having been told that there was an illness. And mm. then even a couple of years later, I went back to them and said, look, here's all the, the subsequent assessments and the, the real details. And I sent them documents, all the psychiatric assessments of the medication review, all of that stuff, and, uh, and said, you know, so can you just remove that disciplinary it, action? And yeah. they said no. It's almost like, it's almost like <clears throat> I wonder how much of the stigma comes from and not that this excuses it all but but how much of it comes from the body or how much of it comes from the intersecting factors like like the school being worried about how the student body feels or the college feeling yeah to, you know feeling like they're going to take shit from you know whoever because they take this approach so it's not really necessary might not necessarily be how they feel but that they are you know, like they're they're doing Perception. like the cost. They're doing yeah. like the cost benefit the analysis that the pharmaceutical yeah. companies are taking on yeah. how they analyze your situation and how they treat it. I think that I think the timing and the right. and the seriousness of the the issues being addressed in society at the time Most in terms certainly. of how yeah. men were treating women and yeah. I think all those things play into it. And I I guess another conclusion I've drawn in this is that. Um, stigma will be more likely, and so in other words, blaming the person for the illness-related behaviors, it'll be more likely if the behaviors are the type that bug us, mm. yeah. that bother us, that we find distasteful or unpleasant. Like if, you know, in, in think of any other kind of behavior other than what this was, uh, I don't think I would have gotten the same reaction mm-hmm. really from anybody. But right. I, I'm so re- I'm really curious how um, this, like the, the decisions like this from the governing bodies um, and your, how they impacted your recovery process afterwards. Um, and I, you know, I think of this from my, to go to like a physical illness um, anecdote, my mom had cancer and when she um, was given like the quote unquote all clear from the uh, cancer doctor, it was like at that point, that's when her real recovery started. And I'm speaking about her mental health at that point. And so, um, you know, when you stop taking this medication and they're basically like, all right, Todd, like 
you're good now. Like you're back to your old self. You're yep. in a couple months, you're going to be a hundred percent. Um, what is the impact of the moral injury that is caused by that experience that you went through? And then the subsequent recovery process, like afterwards and trying to deal with like the PTSD from this entire experience, including, you know, the suicidality, which is incredibly, um, traumatic. Yeah. The, the moral injury is, <clears throat> is deeply connected to the shame, right. And, you know, shame for having behaved in ways that I, I find offensive, right. And that are not me. And so that, that part will kind of always hurt. Um, I think the, the judgment that came from, from certain organizations in this process, it, there is no question it caused me a lot of harm. And I'm not trying to play victim here. I, I, I've never done this in this process. I, I, you know, I know that I offended and hurt a lot of people uh, in, with my, well, mostly texting and stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate I never got to the point uh, it never escalated to the point that many people in the literature and in the lawsuits got to in terms of having affairs or propositioning people or, mm. or being inappropriate that way. Uh, I, I'm lucky, but, um, but, but the shame, the shame that comes from my own judgment and from these other organizations and other people judging me for it as a person, uh, you know, so at the university as an, just as an example, uh, uh five months before the the first incident that that drew a complaint um, in terms of my communication with a student, five months before, I was given by the students association. I was given the highest award for excellence in teaching, and that's as a part time member of faculty, right? And that was my second time getting that award. So, you know, if there's a creepy old man prof on a campus, who knows about it? Mm students and every damn one of them does for sure right? yeah. you go to like ratemyteacher.com or whatever and it's yeah. like uh yeah yeah the You're, reviews are the writings the, on the wall <laughs> absolutely and so but the, the students association you know their their respect for me was was shown regularly in that sense and so um <clears throat> you know that this this was clearly and i'd been teaching there for 27 years at that time uh, with really high ratings and and a lot of respect and but but still at that time even though there was this illness piece and there was this history like logic would tell you you know this guy's been like this up until this point and then all of a sudden now this is happening there's something not right mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. um, so the 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 shame though that comes from the judgment from those organizations yeah. just piled it on to my own favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's interesting because I, I feel like there's some um, parallels here with the prison system in terms of rehabilitation. And if our goal is ultimately to have a better functioning society, if we put people in jail, for example, um, 
for 10 years to serve at a sentence. And then once they serve that time and they're deemed to be, you know, able to come back into society and hopefully function where, you know, they're able to be collaborative and, and, you know, um, uh, like a, a functioning member of society, then why do we then continue to punish them afterwards? Is it helpful for the individual? Is it helpful for the community? I would argue no. And I think that your definition of stigma is, is really profound. Um, and I've never heard anything like that where we're judging people on their moral fiber rather than the things that we've deemed to be impacting or affecting them that would <coughs> lead them to behave in the way. And, um, yeah, I guess I, yeah. I found that really interesting. I, uh, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, on the book. Uh, it's not about us. Um, you, we've, we've kind of touched on it a little bit here, but, um, you know, I, I know that one of the big key points of this book is, uh, really pushing for, um, a client centered system. Mm -hmm. Um, what is a client centered system? And, uh, is that, you know, having gone through the system now yourself and looking back, um, do you, do you feel like it still stands what you wrote in the book before Absolutely. going through it? Okay. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I still do consulting and speaking around the country on, on this <laughs> concept. I, I believe that, so, the, so the, the, the premise of the book is this, that there is a distinction we need to make between client-centered care and a client-centered system. Mm. That's the key. Right. So we have client-centered care. We have lots of psychologists and social workers, therapists, doctors, nurses, et cetera, who, you know, when they're doing their one-to-one, -one, when they're in, in the, you know, your hospital room with you providing medical care, you know, they're showing compassion and empathy and, and designing your treatment around you. And so the care part we've got, it's truly client-centered in most cases. I mean, I've met some people who, you know, wouldn't fit that description. Uh, sure. but, but the system in which those people are working isn't client-centered. So the hoops people have to jump through to try to get access. You know, I think about, like, you, you've had conversations with Sally Guy from the Canadian Association of Social Workers and with the federal minister. And, you know, it, it, the, the big issues are things like access. And it's, yeah. when you look at any of the complaints that are in the media, and there are many, they're not about you know, my therapist wasn't compassionate. They're not about that. They're all about the administrative and policy and procedural and bureaucratic crap. That's the system. Mm -hmm. And so what, what we did in the South Shore of Nova Scotia just a few years back, um, I had a team that was really ready to be committed to trying something different. And I had uh, people supervising me, you know, my own bosses, who who took the handcuffs off and kind of said, Go for it. And, um, you know, it started making waves and, and the, the CEO at the time said, well, is, is this going to is this going to reduce wait times and give people access and make it better? And I said, yes, or else I'll quit. And he said, OK, then I've got your back. Go. And so we had something that's rare, which is permission to make waves and to change sacred things. Mm. So what we started with was looking at, you know, what are the what are the processes people have to go through just to get to us? And so. And those are tiny things sometimes, like, I don't know, if they, if they Google, you know, mental health in their area, how many phone numbers are they going to find? And will they be able to figure out which one it is that's the right one for them? Well, they're not going to if they have an anxiety disorder because they're going to sweat that a, a lot, mm -hmm. you know. Um, or, you know, I, one of the examples I, I really like to use because it's, it's so tiny but, but still huge is um, 
uh, we had a, a waiting room in the middle of kind of three hall, three corridors in, the, in our building. And I started realizing that, you know, we, we intentionally make people wait. You know, we, we call it a waiting room. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what, if you call a room a classroom, what is it you're planning to do there? You're planning to hold classes. So if you call it a waiting room, then what is it you're planning? You're planning for people to end up waiting. They don't control whether they wait or not unless they show up early. It's, it's us. How do we build our schedules? Mm. And do we, can we build them in a way that nobody has to wait? Because, uh, so I've lived with depression, as I said, my whole life. And I can tell you, if I'm in an acute state of depression and I show up at the place where people are paid to care about me and, you know, my appointment's for one o'clock and, and I'm sitting there at one twenty, and they haven't come to get me yet, I can tell you how my mind yeah. interprets it. Yeah. And that is, I'm not important enough. I was right. It yeah. just confirms, right? and so you know, and people with other kinds of of problems, you know, that's just not the place for them. And again, that's a tiny thing, but uh, so I, I made a change. We shifted the way our schedules worked, and uh, and I set a policy that that is, if a patient, if a client shows up on time for their appointment, they get seen on time. And the only one exception that we allowed was if you're seeing another client and that person is in crisis. Right. Then, of course, you manage that and somebody has to wait. And so it's and and documents. How many times do we ask people the same questions on different forms? Yeah. You know, go through the healthcare system and, you you know, you've had your share of that. How many times do you answer the same questions? It seems like a lot of these like a lot of these issues are the reasons why patients kind of like fall through the cracks. But like. And you're saying that it's small, like it's a, it's a little thing. Each one. But there's so fucking many little things. Exactly. Like there's so many of these little things that just... Small ma- yeah, it's crazy. But but I'm curious, like with the waiting room example, um, you know, even at a at my like family physician's office when I was growing up, um, you know, I'd go there and wait for 45 minutes to see the doctor. But, um, you know, like it seems like the change that you made was actually not that hard to implement. Like telling the you know, the specialists who are there that the client is priority number one, they must be seen on time. And then that change happens. Like what's happening in the background or behind the scenes that, that maybe might be, um, something that the, the doctor is giving up to be able to accommodate seeing that client on time or is there anything? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so there's all kinds of, of stuff in the background, right? So there's, there's, uh, I know less tolerable things like, for instance, uh, I know maybe a therapist uh, go decides to go out for lunch for their lunch break, you know, and and they're just sort of taking their time getting back, thinking, oh yeah, no, I'll only be about five minutes late, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that big a deal. So sometimes it's that kind of stuff, just not not taking that seriously enough. But that's more rare. Uh, but in other cases, it's just, uh, you know, they they may have uh, administrative stuff they have to do. Uh, there was a a, a news item. Just in the last couple of days, um, a study that that talks about the number of hours that doctors uh, spend doing administrative work, paperwork. Well, I talk about that in the book because our, our therapists are in the same boat. So, so when do they do that, and how much does that interfere with the the number of appointments they can offer, the amount of time they spend with clients? So, we restructured the whole schedule so that we had this block of two hours, I think, per week that every therapist got to to do their paperwork, their administrative stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we built in 10 minutes between all appointments. So we built in some of that, you know, what's needed in order to keep things on schedule. So when show, people show up, they're on time. 
And we, but we also then were able to use that to eliminate one of the bigger problems. And so uh, most organizations that offer mental health and addictions realize that they have too many people not showing up uh, or canceling, right? So calling to cancel, sometimes you get notice, you know, a couple hours, a couple days, sometimes it's good and you can rebook that time, but sometimes people just don't show up. Mm. Okay. So then that's a lost appointment that somebody outside needs, right? So, uh, and, and organizations have struggled with this for a long, long time. So what we did was, well, we've got this two hour block that's for administrative purposes. So, uh, you know, so Taylor's a therapist and he's got this client who doesn't show up. Well, he doesn't know that until, you know, five minutes into the appointment yeah. slot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then what do we do with that? It's wasted time. So what we do is we switch that for an hour of his administrative time in the, ne- you know, on Friday or next week or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we now Instead book an like, appointment. Oh, I got some free time. Right. It's now <laughs> yeah. your administrative time yeah. for that hour. So you're going to do that. <laughs> and then your, your two hour block that was planned is now an appointment and a one hour block. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's no appointment lost. For even a no-show, even a no, an unpredicted no-show, right? isn't it? Like it, it feels like um, one of the I don't want to say excuses, but one of the uh, justifications for the the slowness of implementing change in the healthcare system is that there's too much bureaucracy. It's the there's so much red tape. It's so hard to make a change. But when I hear you talk about some of these things, it's like the simple things that are not just incremental changes that are happening, but they're actually pretty significant, um, big changes. Like is, is the bureaucracy red tape argument a, a bit of a, like, is there a fallacy there? Is it a bit of an excuse or is that really true too, where there is a lot of red tape or hoops to jump through? And just to piggyback off of that in your, in your case, you're, you're working in a, a private clinic versus a Versus like no, this was this was the the provincial system. Okay, okay, yeah. I just wanted to be clear. I just wanted to be clear on that because I know that there's obviously a big difference between something private and public. Yeah, so no, like, this was under when when we had uh, separate health authorities, nine of them in the province. This was the South Shore. Yeah. Um, so uh, bureaucracy and red tape and all that administrative stuff is for certain. Uh, I I would say the number one barrier to real change, and. The problem is that making those changes requires that uh, senior administrators need to be ready for some people to be unhappy and for there to be grumbling because unions might not like it, for instance, because now we're scheduling appointments in the evening. And so some of the staff who have been working Monday to Friday daytimes are now doing evening hours and they don't like it. And so you get grievances and you get... You know, and or politicians might might not like something because you you're uh, you know it might involve more money, but uh, but you know I've I've had to shut down certain advocacy issues on on public policy because of politicians interfering. Um, you know, so there are political and uh, and other kinds of challenges because change will always make somebody unhappy. Sure, right? There's no such thing as leading any change without making some people happy and unhappy. And if you're not getting both of those, you're probably doing something wrong, right? You're probably not changing enough or mm-hmm. changing too much. But, um, <clears throat> but I think there's, a, there's a, a hesitancy to really push those kinds of changes because it means bucking the system and bucking yeah. tradition. And I, I, I drafted, a, this is an interesting thing, I drafted about a 10-page 
sort of a concept paper. It was meant to be like just a discussion paper for staff about <laughs> how we could become more client-centered. So this was at the beginning of this transformation we led. And it, it turned, it ended up being a book. You know, it's, it was mm -hmm. the, kind of the beginning of me trying to write some of these ideas and thoughts. And I, set, I emailed it out to all the staff. The chief of psychiatry, who was kind of like a, my co-lead at the time, wrote back to me <clears throat> and to everybody else and said, in my 40 years as a practicing psychiatrist, this is the worst document I've ever read. And all it was was talking about, you know, how do we make things more about the client? But it represented change to the power structure for this guy. Right. It wasn't going to be about him anymore. Right. And so, you know, when, and when I started doing things like uh, having evening appointments, because, you know, the, the Monday to Friday daytime stuff is discriminatory against people who have lower paying jobs, yeah. who don't have benefits where they can get paid time off to, to, uh, to go to appointments, who have childcare issues, and that makes it a gender discrimination issue. You know, so it, it's, it's discriminatory. So, so we, we were going to build in a couple of evenings of appointments and, I remember being in a staff meeting the week before we were going live with this and this guy who had been there, a therapist who had been there for a long time, he says, I've been here 10 years and I can tell you that this isn't going to work. The, these appointments aren't going to get used. And I said, why? He said, well, in my 10 years here, nobody's ever asked for an evening appointment. <laughs> and so I said, I said, well, I said, put up your hand if you've ever gone to Walmart and asked for a Toyota Corolla. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Well, because they don't sell them and you know that ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. if we don't offer evening appointments, why would anybody ask for one? Yeah. It was just, just failed <laughs> logic, right? And, what, anyway. are, what, are your, uh, what are your thoughts on, um, and I, I feel like what you're just kind of saying might, might tie into this um, fairly well, but what are, what are your thoughts on um, if you list, if you heard this piece or if you've heard it from Carolyn Bennett um, <coughs> in, in, in other arenas on bringing, bringing the privatization of a lot of mental health services back under the umbrella of the public health care system. I know that that's, yeah. a, that sounds like that just sounds just like such a gigantic job and complicated. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on it and what some of the benefits slash problems might kind of rise it it's it has to happen um <clears throat> so uh, a couple thoughts one uh, i've i've been the president of the association of psychologists of nova scotia and one of the things that we launched several years ago was the beginning of of trying to advocate for that and it, it's not as complicated as people think it is because you know if if i'm a private practice psychologist or a therapist of some sort i'm working out there the, the real question is do I have the ability to bill MSI, to bill the province, if I get a patient who can't pay? Mm. That's the key, right? Because if somebody has an insurance policy that's paying, well, we don't really need to be worrying about them if, they, if it'll give them enough. This is really about the people who can't afford to, can't mm -hmm. afford to access that. And so uh, we, we already have billing processes in place. Doctors bill all the time per visit. Well, we have all kinds of, it's just about quickly building an administrative process. And I, I'm oversimp oversimplifying it. I realize sure. that. But that's really all it's about is if you do that, then you've got uh, the whole public, which I consider to be the client. It's not just the individuals who come through the door. It's the whole population. They all can access support through any private or public 
door, mm-hmm. regardless of money. That's the goal, right? And so it doesn't matter if they're, I mean, you're never going to get everybody inside the tent completely because there are people who have left the, left the public system mm. because they don't want to work in, in, that, in what they felt to be a, a, an overly bureaucratic system. Mm-hmm. So from like a billing perspective, you would have, you would have sort of like a hierarchical um, sort of um, uh, like kind of decision tree, I suppose. Maybe that's a bad way of putting it, but identifying like, can this person pay out of pocket, have an insurance policy or not pay for it? And obviously there's going to be a percentage of those two people who, who, who can afford to pay for it out of pocket, whether they have an insurance policy or not people who have an insurance policy that they can access through their work or whatever it is. And then, and that's going to make up a chunk. So we're not, it's not like we're necessarily dealing with the entire population coming in and the burden of, of the federal government or the provincial government's covering a hundred percent of all the mental health services that are going to end up being used. Right. And no provincial government is going to go down that road quite in that way because no one is going to put up their hand and say, you know, our government will volunteer to pay for therapy that your Blue Cross is already willing to right. pay for. Right. Nobody's going there, <laughs> right? So, you know, this has to be taken into account as part of it. And it's one of the things that I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't belong to any party, but, but Tim Houston, part of his uh, um, campaign, you know, in this province, it was all about health care. But, yeah. but one specific thing was this. <laughs> he was going to try to make sure that we have truly universal access to, to mental health and addiction. Yeah. And so he's going down this road in, in, it's, in some it's, it's nice when, I mean, I, I feel like politicians in general, it's hard to trust anyone because they'll just say whatever and not share. But, but when, when, <laughs> when, when the idea is socialized and people, the public generally starts to adopt or subscribe to an idea that this is an important issue and we need to solve it, then that's what sort of gives me some hope that that problem will you know, eventually yep. be resolved. It, it, we're in a place right now where it seems like across the country, uh, the healthcare system is just like failing and, and, and burning badly. Um, do you see, do you see a future where we will likely start to see the changes that we need to have a better system or like what's, what's your outlook on the future of healthcare in Canada? I think, um, I think it's possible to get to a better place, but uh, I believe that we're not going to do that just by doing what, what you hear most people talk about, which is, you know, adopt certain models and structures and, you know, or just throwing more money at it. I I think what is required, uh, this is my belief, um, is that we start to hire leaders in a different way, hire different kinds of leaders who who understand this idea of putting the client before the, 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 the bottom line for government or before uh, the, the, I don't know, the efficiency for managers or the, or the happiness of the unions or the, you know, all of those things that get in the way that we, that we actually put ahead of the clients. Yeah. And so I think unless, I think if we can start to hire differently, that's, it's a foundational piece because then the decisions that get made are are based on that principle right and so i i think there's there's potential there but but not unless we start to redefine what what leadership is not to oversimplify that idea but is it a matter of like you know thinking of like the corporate world and the corporate ladder 
like a, a person who performs well as a good manager hitting like certain KPIs will then be promoted to Synergy. leader or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is a serious, this is a serious question. So Optimization. Like, you, you promote efficient or the most productive <laughs> managers because they're a good manager, but then you make them a leader, Ban-ban. but then necess- they're not necessarily a, a, a good leader. So yeah. like in the public system, it's the same sort of thing. You know, you have a, uh, a nurse that has, you know, 30 years of experience who does this job really well, who's then promoted to be the leader of the nurses union or whatever. Yeah, or is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to make that distinction between management and, and leadership and our, our bureaucratic systems, the public sector generally is heavily leaning in the direction of, of having people in charge who are good at managing. And, and that's great. We absolutely need that. But we also need to, to start to put people in true leadership roles who, mm. who are future oriented. And, uh, you know, one of the metaphors I like to use is that management is about keeping the train on the tracks and leadership is about figuring out where new tracks need to be built. Mm-hmm. So those are completely different skill sets. Right. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not really the best at the management piece, but I know some people who are brilliant. I would put my life in their hands if it comes to, mm. you know, keeping the train on the tracks and the details and uh but we need to we need to be putting people in leadership roles who who see nothing but the future. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if I'm wondering <laughs> if um if also and this is something that we kind of we touched on when we were um when we were uh, sitting down with Ian a couple of weeks ago, um, which is, is are there are there cert, are there systems that that need to be, um I don't think they'll ever be completely divorced from the political cycle but that they can be divorced enough so that they can't be pressured. These, some of these systems can't be pressured in real time by the political system. So like the example that I think about um, is the, uh, the federal reserve in the United States, you know, the federal reserve chair gets elected by the president, but he's got four years to do the job and that president can't put when interest rates are going up, they can't, he can't say, don't raise interest rates right now because that's not good for me. He's not allowed, the president's not allowed to, to put that pressure on. He might get rid of the, the, that chair when the, site, when the political cycle's over, but at least in that four years, he's got, his, he's got his own agenda that he can follow. And like, whereas in other systems, you know, there's immediate, you know, if something's not good politically, I'm going to put that pressure on that system right now. I'm going to put my, my thumb on the scale and adjust things and then some things just never get a chance to grow into whatever they were going they might have been regardless of what side of the argument you might be on for whatever that changes yeah um that's that's a complicated question but i i think um it it is possible but it would take legislative change yeah right there'd have to be legislation that protects the organizations but right now the way things stand that's almost unheard of. Uh, you know, government has the, the control over virtually every public service, mm-hmm. even when they were separate corporations and they still are. So Nova Scotia Health, for instance, is a separate corporation. And we did have nine of those uh, at some point. And, but, but government could still, through the minister and deputy minister and the CEO of the health authorities, could stick their hand in and say, no, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I sent in a... A FOIPOP, a Freedom of Information request, once uh, years ago, um, to get specific advertising information from the NSLC, 
because I, I had been doing a lot of work around uh, the, the harms that alcohol advertising actually causes, right? Specific to our kids. And uh, anyway, and I, I ended up getting called to the CEO's office, CEO of this independent health authority, and told that the minister and the deputy minister have ordered me to stop and to retract that Whoa. request. There's a lot of tax money with so, alcohol. Yeah, so yeah. the NSLC at that time obviously went to the de- to the minister of finance that yeah. controls them, and then they went to the minister of health who went to you know, and so all, you all yeah. just because <laughs> this this young guy in the in the system was looking for some information to yeah. you know. Yeah. to look out for the health of Nova Scotia. Oh, crazy. Damn. That so. speaks to it. Todd, um, just to come back to like the personal story, um, what would you say is the biggest thing that your mental health crisis has taken away from you? Um, it's taken away from me. I, I think actually uh, confidence. Uh, you know, I've, I've always been a pretty confident person, but that was shattered. My confidence in, and it really because I, you know, I went through this thing where I, I no longer had control over even myself. And so, which is kind of like the ultimate loss of control. You know, if you lose control over some other things in your life, that's one thing. But, mm. um, and so it, uh, it really made a difference in my, my confidence. And, um, yeah, I can still, I can still, work in a confident way but inside it's not the same inside it's very different now what would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you uh i think the biggest thing is insight into uh insight into stigma actually i think is the big one for me i I just never thought of it in in the way that i do now and i can see it in so many in so many ways with so many kinds of illnesses and you know, I, I see it all around me and I, I just think of it in a, in a very different way. And, um, and so that's what I wanted. I want to put some effort into that. That's why I'm writing about that with this story. And, mm. um, cause I think there's, there's value in describing it in a way that the public can really understand and relate to and, yeah. and see in their own behaviors and in their friends. And, in, you know, if it's not, like, I mean, you know, you just said, Brian, I mean, you, you never thought of it quite the, the way that I described it. I think that's, that's the, the hardest s- part about stigma. It, it, it is. It's really like it really is a hard thing to get across to people for people to see yeah. it for what it actually is. Yeah. I, when when you explain it that way, I, I suddenly feel like I have a sense of clarity on yeah. what it actually like. I feel like I can now identify it when I see it in my life rather than just going that stigma and sort of making a blanket statement about it. It's like, yeah. well, what does that really mean? Yeah. 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 How far are you out from, uh, from the new book? Like what's your, what's your process right now? Well, I, I started it a few years ago actually, but it, it was too, quite frankly, it was too painful to write. Yeah. I, I, so I had to stop. It was, it was killing me. And, uh, but I'm back at it slowly and I, I figure it still might be a year out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, the, this other book I wrote in six months, um, you know, pretty much full time, but it's not the same thing. It's, mm-hmm. this is, this is different, but. Mm. Well, Todd, uh, this has been a, a really eye opening and, and engaging conversation. I want to say thank you for taking time to come into the studio today and, and chat with us. And, uh, I look forward to the, to the new book. Thanks. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks a lot. 
Ooh. I didn't get cursed at. I didn't get. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. I figure that's a win. <laughs> <laughs>